Good morning. It is a pleasure to be joining you all again, just over a year after I delivered a message for the first time in front of this congregation. And if Pastor Adam keeps asking me to come back, I guess I must be doing something right. I was looking at that message, the one I delivered last year, and I couldn't help but notice that I had written that message amidst studying for the MCAT, the Standardized Admissions Test for Medical School Applications. And if you know me well enough, you could probably recall that just last week I was still studying for the MCAT, nearly 14 months after I'd made the decision to begin my journey in the first place. Now, one is not supposed to study for this exam over a 14-month period. Most people suggest the preparation process not exceed three or four months. If you can do the math, 14 is far greater than three or four. With the MCAT, it is always important to take it when you are ready and not any sooner or any uh, later. In the spring of 2021, I looked at my peers and saw that most of them had already taken the exam, and if they hadn't, they were on their way to preparing for their first attempt. In the high-pressure world of being a collegiate pre-medical student, you have a lot of pressure from external influences telling you to stick to a certain timeline, never fall behind, and whatever you do, never get a GPA that is below A level. One might consider a failure to achieve these requirements cardinal sins if we are to use the term loosely. Whether it was pre-medical advisors, professors, or my fellow pre-medical students, there was a large emphasis on fulfilling other standards. Only when you do what we tell you, they would say, you will succeed. If you truly want that coveted white coat, they would often imply, you must follow what we tell you down to the wire. For much of my college experience, I made a conscious effort to avoid the rat race, but I still found myself caught in the implicit and pernicious influence of the pre-medical admissions game. So much so that I felt like I just had to take the MCAT the summer before my senior year for no other reason other than to stick with the timeline set out for me. I simply wasn't ready because I was also trying to do research and hold a full-time clinical job. But because my pre-medical advisor told me I had to take the MCAT as soon as possible, that I was falling behind, I pushed ahead anyway. But by the time two months into my preparation time rolled out, I was exhausted, burnt out, and feeling exceptionally discouraged. Fast forward four months, and I had rebooked my MCAT for the new year. I thought I was ready. I had more ducks in a row. I fulfilled other very important requirements, and I told myself, now must be the time to take it. Now is the right time to push ahead. Granted, this was in response to a professor who was giving me pressure and saying that I was falling behind, as my fellow pre-meds had already taken their exams. Sure, I had other commitments and academic work that made exam preparation exceptionally difficult to fit in, but I kept telling myself and I kept being told that I needed to get it done, that it had to get done now, because that was all part of the edicts that were prescribed for me to follow. I prepared for another few weeks before I got an email from the administrators of the MCAT exam saying that I needed to change my date in order to accommodate a slew of COVID-19 applicants who were unable to take the exam during the height of the pandemic. I was frustrated, anxious, and facing a lot of uncertainty. I could automatically hear the voices of others in my head saying, why are you behind? What have you done thus far? I thought, will I fail if I don't do what I was told to in the way I was told to do it? I was already taking unorthodox approaches to my other requirements, clinical experiences and research projects that I almost felt like a zealot veering too far from the right and only way to traverse this journey. And this past spring, I hoped and prayed that the third time would be the charm when I rebooked it once more. 
I pushed through for three months, preparing during the semester all that I could, and took the exam at the beginning of April. I had read articles by top MCAT scorers and listened to MCAT advisors who said to focus on your weakest points and hone in on one's mastery of the content where it is most threadbare. I'd read the exam's manual to a T, which gave me a pretty specific approach to focus on the exam. I was still thinking, if I do what they tell me, I will succeed. So I pushed ahead. When I took the exam, I was too tired to process how I felt about it and was glad that it was just over and done with. This was it. Every time I listened to the established voices of the pre-medical world, I would falter because I found that my score was a lot lower than I intended it to be. Every time I listened to them, I found myself farther from my dream and not closer to it. In fact, the anxiety I was experiencing from those voices telling me how much I fell short already was so bad, I barely slept the night before the exam and neglected a section I was told I needn't waste too much time on. You'd get it. You already took the class. It should be fine. Oftentimes, to my peril. Instead of trusting myself and trusting God's timeline for my journey, I tried to conform to others' expectations, and it never turned out as well as I would have liked it. I was done. I was tired of these supposed teachers and gurus and know-it-alls, and I stopped listening to them. I went for another attempt at the exam, my second time taking it, but my fourth time working towards it. I ignored the advice of someone who told me it wasn't worth taking a second time. Your score won't increase that much, I was told. I vowed to not waste the limited amount of energy I had left by this 14-month period thinking about these external edicts that would lead me to close my brain off for the sake of some extrinsic motivation whether it be fulfilling others' opinions of my timeline or seeking a sense of self-worth through the three-digit number of my exam score. I worked to let go of what these fallible individuals had to say and only put thought and trust where it was needed. Immediately, I felt like I opened up. I was taking in information that I was once too anxious to process. When you're doing work for your own sake, it tends to be a lot easier of a process. After 14 months of frustration, self-doubt, and voices telling me that I would be better off quitting, I'm finally glad to have such a trying time over and done with. This very long and exhausting test, hopefully not for the time being. It has come to define my ups and downs over the past year, and I know that if I continue to listen to the commandments of these external influences, I would likely not be on the path that was set before me. Now you must be asking why I share this story. Well, God challenges us constantly. He gives us these tests on a regular basis, assessing our obedience, our love, and our faith. Many of us here may describe ourselves as fervent Christians and might be convinced as to what these tests would entail, going as far as saying that they could foresee the tests of obedience, love, and faith well before they truly set in on our lives. Some of us might even think that we know what these tests look like, setting the more obvious examples exhibited in our favorite parables or in Christian-themed films and, uh, that can be found excuse me, in movies and television. But like I would soon learn over my 14-month MCAT period, such tests are not as obvious as we would like to believe. I thought the advice of those within the realm of medicine, advisors whose jobs are dedicated to helping individuals like me succeed within this long and grueling process, were the voices that were most valuable to listen to. But the truth was, they were oftentimes a counterproductive influence that risked sending me off my journey. When we think about being tested by God, many of us imagine a sort of trial akin to what Jesus experienced as he wandered the desert hungry for 40 days, being prodded and provoked by a tempter who promised him food for his hunger or power in exchange for first bowing down to him. 
We think about how Jesus, who was perched high on that mountain and promised all the kingdoms of the world, lambasted the tempter and declared to him that he must only worship the Lord your God and that he is the only one that you should serve. For many lay Christians, this is the ideal test God sets out for us, where he challenges us in ways that provide us with overt choices that appeal to a Christian moral code. But more often than that, he challenges us in ways that are less obvious. His tests emerge in the form of more implicit, discrete challenges that are not easy to predict or detect, but are more telling of our dedication to his world nonetheless. Akin to the challenges of my personal career journey, arising from those within the realm of medical education, God presents us with challenges and commands us to watch for voices that do not just come from outside the church, but inside Christian spaces as well. 1 John is the fourth of the general epistles, which are the writings of apostles to the church at large. While Paul is known for writing to specific congregations and individuals, offering them advice tailored to their concerns or their unique challenges, Peter, James, John, and Jude wrote to broader audiences scattered across the Roman Empire, which by that, by that point had numerous early, uh, early churches. Excuse me. John itself contains no hint of the identity of the Christian community to which it was addressed, nor does it give any specific clue to the identification of the locale involved in which these, leader, these believers lived. The only thing that can be said for certain about the intended readers is that they were all Christians who appeared to have been well known to the author, and that these Christians were facing a threat from false teaching, one threat that appeared to have risen, to risen excuse me, from within their Christian community. At the time of John's writing, it was probably easier to get away with false teachings than it ever had been before. The apostles were growing older, and churches were, t- were springing up all over the Roman Empire, taking all sorts of liberties with what they had to say. Many teachers would suggest that Jesus was not the Son of God, and would suggest Jesus' purpose was to ensure their congregations followed a specific moral code, often dictated by the teachers themselves. Many of these teachers would instruct their churches to do certain things and avoid other things in order to attain salvation. These teachers would proclaim to their church that if they did not listen to and obey this law, they would be denied entrance into the kingdom of heaven. And many of these teachers would cite scripture in order to further their approach. Because these teachers claimed to be Christians, it was probably very troubling for these young churches to hear. Whom can they believe and how can they evaluate these new teachers as they came? In Jesus' day, rabbis and other spiritual leaders enjoyed widespread respect and were held in high esteem in Jewish society. Almost everyone looked up to the Pharisees. They were strict adherents to the law, and they were the guardians of tradition. In effect, they were the exemplars of piety. In their vaulted position, they avoided those they deemed sinners, those who did not follow their system of rules. Owing to how much they professed adherence to Mosaic law, few questioned them and took much of what they said at face value. By virtue of the Pharisees' position as teachers within the Jewish within the Judean community, excuse me, few question the hypocrisy and the legalism of the Pharisees' religiosity in a manner not too far removed from how many Christians may see their religious leaders today. Jesus' ministry fundamentally questioned this and by doing so tested the faith of these Pharisees who saw themselves as the prime arbiters of the law. If one was considered a sinner or ritually unclean, the Pharisees were not to share space or interact with them. Jesus, as we all know, was different. He chose to eat with sinners because he knew that they needed to know that repentance and forgiveness was plentiful. 
Instead of preaching how these social outcasts may have broken the law or fallen short of it, he reached out to them with unending love and immense grace. As Mark had written, he came not to call the righteous, but sinners. He went to where the need was because, as Luke wrote, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. This was something the Pharisees did not understand. And when Jesus had tested their response to his actions, they failed because the law was more important to them, for they loved the law far greater than they loved God himself. Many Christians in our country often misunderstand Jesus' intentions when he sat with Jesus, sat with sinners excuse me, and broke bread with them. While it is true that Jesus' actions in spending time with sinners were in accordance with his mission to seek and to save the lost, he sought to openly challenge the notions of do this, not that, which at the time defined who was truly worthy of God's favor. Throughout Jesus' ministry, he broke taboos and condemned the Pharisees' legalistic system of attaining righteousness. The fact that Jesus ate with sinners shows that he looked beyond culture and looked towards people's hearts. Where the Pharisees disregarded people because of their behavior, Jesus saw their spiritual need in the present. When John writes his letter to the early churches, he seeks to reiterate this, drawing a distinction between those in the world and those who are of God. Because, like the Pharisees, these false teachers sought to craft a narrative driven by worldly demands, often arguing that a moral code is what grants eternal life, rather than grace driven, out, driven by excuse me, living out God's eternal love. This is what John writes, You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them. Because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God, and whoever knows God listens to us, but whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. Now, if you've read 1 John chapter 4, you might understand that there is a great deal of reiteration in this chapter where John makes appeals to his recipients by establishing that God is love, and that love is a test, not just love of God, but our love of one another and God's love of us. One of the features of this whole epistle is the presentation of a number of tests regarding the genuineness of Christian life. It is from this epistle that the idea of God is love emerges, because love is evidence of salvation by granting grace to ourselves and others in spite of our brokenness we are living in a manner that exemplifies who God calls us to be. As Christians, we are all too often tempted to treat the scripture much like the Pharisees treated the law of Moses. It is just as easy to debase the word of God by extending it in service of a crusade as it is to fall short of what God truly asks of us. John writes about how God gives us tests of obedience, love, and faith, but we are not to treat them as separate experiences. Rather, we are called to acknowledge how they are interconnected parts of the same spiritual journey, driven by the same spiritual idea. As Christians, we might know what it means to live in a manner that is Christ-like, but how can we expect others to do so if they have never known God themselves? Do we truly live in a Christ-like way if we define others by their sin like the Pharisees did, supplanting grace for judgment? It is in that way that God tests us every day. And in a world where it seems Christian communities would rather dig a moat and point, failing, point fingers at the moral failings of the outside world, chapter 4 of John's first letter is an especially informative study guide on how we pass God's daily tests of our obedience and our faith. No other book of the Bible talks about, John, talks about love as often as 1 John does. 
about one in 50 words is a form of love. That makes for about 52 mentions of love in just five very short chapters. John makes clear that God does not ask us to look upon our faith and live the scripture like the Pharisees saw the law of Moses. He establishes what Jesus exemplified during his life, that by refusing to let social status or cultural norms dictate our relationships with people, we exemplify the essence of the Spirit instead. Instead of listening to the words of a false teacher calling us to obey their moral prescription for eternal life, we must seek them out, seek others out, meet them where they are, and extend grace to them no matter their circumstances. God tests our capacity to do that every single day. And we must continue to ask ourselves, do we pass the test? Or do we follow the advice of those acting in service of a worldly agenda? It is only when we trust ourselves and listen to the voice of God that we can truly understand what it means to live in Christ. And just like I should not have assumed anyone with a robust background in medical education understood what was right for my personal journey, we as followers of Christ cannot assume that all those who declare themselves as Christian truly teach and exemplify the essence of Jesus' ministry. Let us pray. You've searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise, and you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down, and you are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me and too lofty for me to attain. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.